Hebrews chapter 9, verses 10 through, it should be 11 through 14. But Jesus came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of his crea- this creation, not with the blood of uh, goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then skipping down to verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him, that is Satan, and his demonic hordes, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Father, we come before you, Lord. We just uh, pray as we uh, think and meditate upon the blood of Jesus Christ and the power that it gives us as Christians, Lord. I pray that you bless us. And Lord, help us to think and meditate upon that faithful day, Lord, when the Lord Jesus Christ hung there on the cross, shed his blood for our sins, and then went into heaven itself and offered uh, uh, that blood upon your holy altar there in the heavenlies, not on an earthly tabernacle or a temple, but in the heavenlies for our sins. And Lord, that he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. I praise and thank you for this. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now we're continuing that series entitled The Calvary Road. It's based upon the book The Calvary Road by uh, Roy Hessen. The theme verse for the series is Revelation 12:11, which t- says that they overcame him. That is, all of the forces of darkness by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. Okay, we covered chapter 1, which was brokenness. We saw that we need to be broken, and that involves crucified living. Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And now life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. We also saw chapter 2 was cups running over. What did the cup symbolize? What does the cup symbolize? The cup symbolizes your heart, the human heart. Cups running over, running over with what? The Holy Spirit, right, love, that entails love, okay? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness. It's to be filled up with overflowing with these things and spilling out to a lost and dying world, drawing them close to uh, Jesus Christ. 
as they seek to find out what it is that makes a difference in our lives. Chapter 3 was the way of fellowship. We saw that the the fall of man, that uh, fellowship was broken. Not only between God and man, but between man and his fellow man. And that's why we have such a problem in the world today. Because that fellowship was broken. And we uh, saw that the cure to that is walking in the light. The Apostle John wrote, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. We have fellowship with God and fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to walk in the light? It means to allow the searchlight of God's Holy Spirit to eliminate, illuminate your innermost being. Hallelujah. And convict you of sin. And when you are convicted of sin, you're to confess that sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's just two verses later there in 1 John chapter 1. Okay, chapter 4 was the highway of holiness. And that terminology comes from Isaiah Chapter 35, verses 8 and 9. And we saw that the highway, on the highway to holiness, and that's a highway we should be walking every day, drawing closer and closer to the cross of Jesus Christ, which represents total surrender for us. We don't need to fear the enemy or false doctrine because of that. Chapter 5 was the dove and the lamb. The dove speaks of the Holy Spirit, who is so sensitive to disharmony, he is easily grieved. So if you want the Holy Spirit in your life, you stay away from sin. And the lamb, which is symbolic of Jesus, the lamb of God, who meekly accepted his fate, which was death on the cross. Chapter 6 was revival in the home. We saw that we need to be practicing openness with each other to those in our household and not hide who we really are. We also need to display that agape love, that love by choice. Some of the members of our family, our household, are not very lovable. But that's all right. We need to love them anyway. Amen? Chapter 7 was the moat and the beam. And they saw that the terminology came from that came from Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. The moat is the speck. We updated it for our present terminology here in the 21st century. And the moat is the speck. You know, we're trying to remove a speck of sawdust from our uh, brother's eye. But we've got the beam, the two by four that's in our own eye. And Hessian said that the, the uh, beam there represents the unloving attitude that we ourselves have. If you're going to be able to remove that beam or that speck from your brother's eye, you need to get rid of the unloving attitude and not 
if, especially if they have wronged us. We need to not have resentment and bitterness and an unloving attitude towards that person. Only then when we remove that unloving attitude, then we can help our brother remove the speck out of his eye. We saw that we are not called to be judges. Just before Jesus said that, he said, Judge not that you be not judged, because the measure with which you judge, you shall also be judged. Okay? Not to be judges, but we are to be fruit inspectors. And if we see a lack of fruit in somebody else's uh, life, through whatever, we're to pray about it. And if we have to confront them, and indeed if there's sin in their life, we need to confront them. But we need to do that in the right attitude and the right spirit. And finally last week we saw, are you willing to be a servant? Just like Jesus, we should be willing servants. We should be willing to be servants. The word in the Greek is doulos, which is a uh, servant by choice. Servant by choice. We are to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the building up of his kingdom and not seek greatness for ourselves. And we not only serve Jesus, we serve our fellow man as well. The doulos, you know, gives up his rights of his or her own and lives in total surrender to the master. We should be surrendering our lives complete, completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our master. Amen. Okay, now this week, chapter 9, and it's entitled, The Power of the Blood of the Lamb. Now, when I was preparing this message yesterday, you know, I was going to get right into what Hessian had to say about this subject. But, uh, you know, I just felt a check in my spirit, and God took me off in a completely different direction. It started with uh, the uh, scripture that, you know, I always open up with a scripture, Amen. And when I was thinking about, you know, I, I was thinking about that Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. What, the, you know, additional scripture did I need to have on this subject? And God took me off on a completely different direction. And instead of talking about what uh, Hessian was talking about in uh, his book... I just felt led to explain exactly the significance of the blood of the Lamb and what it means. And so God laid on my heart uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Okay? Now, this was starting at verse 11. It says, But Christ came as high priest. Who is our high priest? Jesus is our high priest. I'm going to get into what that high priest means a little bit later on. A high priest of the good things to come. With a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the heavenly tabernacle. We'll get into that. The one made with hands was the earthly tabernacle. 
that Moses and the craftsmen made for the children of Israel to worship God there in the wilderness. <coughs> the perfect, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is the heavenly one, that is not of this creation. It's not of this creation because it's not here on earth. It's up there in the heavenlies. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. That's the power of the blood of the Lamb. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place, the one there in heaven, once for all. The Greek word there for once for all is a Greek word, ephipox, which means there's a finality. It means once and only once. How many times did Jesus go up there into the heavenly tabernacle to offer up his own blood? How many times did he do that? He did it one time. We're going to look at that a little bit later here. One time. One sacrifice for sins forever. Everybody say that now. One sacrifice for sins forever having obtained eternal redemption. He obtained eternal redemption, not just for us, but for all of mankind. Every person can be redeemed that lives on this earth, that has lived for the last 2,000 years, and the Old Testament saints uh, besides. They were saved by looking forward to that one sacrifice for sins forever. We are redeemed by looking back at what Jesus did there on the cross for our sins. Having obtained eternal, everlasting redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for the purifying of the uh, flesh, if that was efficacious for the purification, actually it never really did away with sin. We're going to look at that. It never really did away with sin. It just covered it up. But if that would uh, uh, accomplish that purification, the writer of Hebrews writes, How much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then when you skip down there to verse 22, there's a scriptural principle that's written right there. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no Remission of sins. It's got to be a blood sacrifice. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? God demanded a sacrifice of them for reconciliation to him. What did Cain offer up? He was a tiller of the soils. So he offered up, you know, a sacrifice of uh, maybe the fruits and the vegetables and the grain that he grew in his fields. 
And God was not pleased with that. Why? Abel offered a sacrifice too. He was a keeper of flocks. What did he offer up? He offered up the blood sacrifice. And that's why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain. Abel offered up the work of his hands. And that's why God is not pleased with those, no matter how good of life that they live, that's not what cuts it with God. Their works do not cut it. Cain offered up the works of his hands. But Abel offered up the blood sacrifice. And it says that's why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not, Cain, not Cain's. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And of course, that means remission of sin. It had to be a blood sacrifice. And that's what Jesus offered up for us. Now, the imagery here in Hebrews chapter 9. Background here. When Moses was up there on Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments, God also gave him a vision of the heavenlies. He saw heaven itself in the throne room of God. And a, that was a... When he came down, God told him to take what he had seen up there and make an earthly tabernacle based upon what he had seen. He got a glimpse of heaven and instructed him to have an earthly tabernacle set here on the earth which would be a pattern, uh, a, a pattern or earthly copy of what he saw up there in the heavenlies. It was up in that he heavenly place that Jesus offered up his blood for our eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 8, the second half of uh, verse 5. For God said to Moses, See that you make all things, that is, all things here with your earthly tabernacle, according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now the tabernacle itself, once Moses had made it, and all the articles that were contained in it, all the vessels, the table of the showbread, the candelabra, or the menorah, uh, it's also called the menorah. We've all seen pictures of that, you know, the uh, a lamp that has those uh, seven branches on it. And also the altar of incense. And finally the inner sanctuary, the holiest Holy of Holies or the holiest of all where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. That was all according to what he had seen there on uh, the in, in the heavenlies. Now all of these things and the book of the law the book of the law was the stone tables, the Ten Commandments and the people, even the people themselves Moses went around to them all individually and he took a hyssop, you know, a uh, uh, kind of a brush-like plant. He dipped it in blood and sprinkled the book 
and the people and all the articles that were used there in the tabernacle. In fact, the tabernacle itself, even the tents and everything. Everything was sprinkled on with blood. And he, he was sprinkled on them to purify and sanctify them. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. The writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore it was necessary... That the copies of the things in heaven, that is the earthly tabernacle, those other, all those things should be purified with these, with the blood of the uh, uh, animal blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What was that better sacrifice? That better sacrifice was what Jesus endured for us there on the cross. Okay, continuing on with his imagery. After all the tabernacle and items it contained in it were sanctified by blood, the most holy place, including the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the earthly tabernacle, you had the outer courtyard. It was all surrounded by uh, the, these uh, uh, animal skins all around. And he had the bronze laver, I, I'm sorry, the bronze altar there, where they would sacrifice the animals. And in the bronze laver, which was a place where the uh, uh, priest that would go into the, ho the, uh, the holy places, they would wash themselves. And then you had the tent there, and that was divided into two sections. You had the holy place, which contained the candelabra and the... Uh, uh, a table of showbread and the altar of incense and then you had the holiest of all which had the Ark of the Covenant where the invisible presence of the Lord resided. Okay? So that holy, holy place was separated from the most holy place by a curtain. And only the high priest was allowed into the most holy place or the holy of holies. And he would enter with the blood of animals to offer sacrifices to the most high God. And he would sprinkle the blood of these animals on the mercy seat, which was where the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody know what the Ark of the Covenant looked like? Well, if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have a picture there. You had the invisible seat, the mercy seat, uh, where, where the presence of God dwelt. And it was overshadowed by two cherubim, and they had their wings bent over. Probably all of you have seen pictures of the Ark of the Covenant at one time or other. Okay, so the high priest would go in there, and he would offer the blood of animals right there. And he would do that only... One time every year. They had other sacrifices that were going on during the course of the year at the bronze altar. But only one time a year, the high priest, according to Aaron, he would go into the most holy place and offer the blood of the animals there on the mercy seat. This was known as the Day of Atonement. Even in modern days, a Jewish holiday, and it's called the Yom Kippur. 
And it's a day when the Jewish people fast and pray until sundown. Okay? It usually occurs in early autumn, late September or early October. It's already gone past for this year, but they had Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross, accomplished this permanently. So that no longer a high priest needed to go in and offer this sacrifice again. Jesus did it alone. He did it by himself, by the sacrifice of himself. So no longer do we need a high priest to go in and offer sacrifices because Jesus did it once for all. One time, one sacrifice for sins forever. Now during the uh, New Testament times, the Jews continued to practice this day of atonement. This time in the temple of Herod. They also did it during the time of Solomon because Solomon uh, built a temple. They no longer used the earthly tabernacle anymore, but Solomon built a temple that was raised by Nebuchadnezzar. So Herod came by many centuries later, about five centuries later, and he built his own temple there. And that was the temple that was in effect during the time of Jesus. You know what happened to that temple? It got leveled to the ground by the Romans, Titus. He not only burned uh, Jerusalem, he leveled that temple to the ground. There was a rumor circulated that the uh, Jews had put gold in between the stones of the temple. And so they tore that whole temple down looking for gold. But of course, it was just a rumor. And you know, that was a, a Jesus himself predicted that was going to happen. You know, you read the Olivet Discourse, the time when Jesus talked about the end of the time. Just prior to that, his disciples came up to him and they said, Look, Jesus, this magnificent building, this magnificent temple. And you know what Jesus did? He said to them, I tell you the truth, that not one stone that has been uh, put upon in this temple will be left standing. They're going to tear it down. It's going to be torn down. And he predicted it would happen within one generation after his death. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why if you go to Jerusalem today, I've been there one time, you can go there and see what's left of Herod's temple. And there's nothing there except the foundation that's left uh, standing. Jesus predicted it right to the uh, very, practically uh, to the very uh, uh, day, the very year that it would happen. It happened one generation after me, and it happened one generation after him. It happened 40 years after his death. Okay? So when, the, when Jesus t says the word, it comes true. Amen?
Can you say amen to that? How many of you believe that everything Jesus said has come or will come true? Amen. amen. That's exactly what happened. Okay, so that earthly temple was right there. It was built by Herod the Great. Okay. Now, they continued to practice the day, this Day of Atonement, uh, this time in the Temple of Herod. But instead of the simple curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the uh, first tabernacle, they had a big, thick curtain. You know, various accounts uh, describe this. And, you know, it was anywhere from four to six inches thick. Can you imagine a curtain that's four to six inches thick? It's not only thick, but it was also huge. You know, it was probably at least ten feet tall by certain accounts. And you know what happened to that uh, curtain? It says there in Matthew chapter 27, verses uh, 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple, this curtain, was torn in two from top to bottom. With one fell swoop, just like that. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Mark talks about that too, and it's also in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn from top to, in two, from top to bottom. Okay? Now what does that mean? First of all, to tear the curtain leading to the most holy place was physically impossible to have been done by man. Can you think about that? What would it take to tear that veil, that uh, uh, four to six inch thick curtain, apart? Well, first of all, you couldn't do it uh, while it was still hanging up there, right? You'd have to take it down. And if you took it down, then it... You know, couldn't be torn from top to bottom. And what would they get to tear it? Probably uh, all you know, horses and uh, you know, bulls and things like that. They couldn't do that. So it it could only be one explanation. God Himself tore that veil. He had to do it. So why did God tear it? He tore it at the very moment of his son's physical death. He was signifying, God was signifying, that the curtain no longer separated man from his presence. The way was now open for all mankind to have direct access to God. You have direct access to God, brothers and sisters. Everybody say that. I have direct access to God. And that's why the new covenant, in the new covenant, we no longer have animal sacrifices. These were only temporary under the old covenant and never really did take away sins. They only covered them up. 
which is why they had to be repeated over and over again to cover up new sins. But Jesus did away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, priests are no longer needed. Now, in a sense, we are priests. Everybody is a a priest. Did you know you were a priest? Peter wrote that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. It says in Revelation that we have become a kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests because now we have the access to God. Priests are mediators. Priests represent man to God. But now we no longer need men here on earth to represent us to him because now we have our great high priest in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 there. We read that earlier. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then... The writer of Hebrews continues on back in the second half of uh, verse 26. But now, once in the end of the ages, he has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He did it alone. He doesn't need us. He did it alone. He did it himself. Jesus offered one sacrifice for all sins forever. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Well when you sit down what does that mean? It means your work is finished. Right? So Jesus' work was finished. It's the finished work of Christ. I told you before about uh, the uh, great missionary to the Chinese. His name is Hudson Taylor. Founded China Inland Mission back in the uh, uh, 19th century. His conversion dated from the time, you know, he was raised in the church. He'd heard it all and everything. And then one day he was reading in this book or this pamphlet. I can't remember what it was. He was reading and he talks about, the pamphlet talked about the finished work of Christ. And Hudson Taylor said to himself, why does he call it the finished work of Christ? Why not the atoning work of Christ? And then it dawned on him. And this was his epiphany. The moment that he became born again. You know, you can be raised in the church all your life and not be born again. You know that? That was his epiphany. He said it's his finished work. And he said, well, what more then do I have to do? I don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all by the sacrifice of himself. You just put your faith in that finished work of Christ. 
And that's how you become born again. You uh, recognize He did it all. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by faith in the finished work of Christ. Jesus is our only mediator. What's a mediator? Mediator is a go-between. Between man and God. And he alone is the high priest. And you read elsewhere in the book of Hebrews. After the order of Melchizedek. Read especially chapter 7 dealing with that. There are no longer Aaronic priests anymore. In the Old Testament. As in uh, the Old Testament. But Jesus alone is high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 says the priesthood has been changed. We no longer have the Aaronic priests. It's going to break the hearts of uh, Mormons who believe that they, that God reinstated the Aaronic priesthood. You know, but it says in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12, the priesthood has been changed. There is no Aaronic priesthood anymore. We don't need it. Instead, we have the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is occupied by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It says there in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 7, But this man, because he continues forever, has an un- intransmissible, unchangeable, it says in the, uh, <clears throat> in the King James Version. But the word there is a parabatos, which means intransferable or intransmissible. It is not conferred upon anybody else. Jesus alone holds that position as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus alone occupies the position of mediator between God and man. So the Catholics believe in uh, priests and bishops and uh, cardinals and, of course, the Pope. But Paul wrote in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and the man is Christ Jesus. Right there. Notice it says, the man, Christ Jesus. Well, Jesus was the son of God, right? But he was also the son of man. This calls attention to his humanity. That's why he had to become the God-man. He was the eternal God, and he was made human flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse You know, John chapter 1, verse 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He had to become man. Why? Because he had to be the mediator. As our high priest, he had to be a man. So Jesus, in his humanity, is the mediator between God and uh, man and God the Father, just as the priests were human in the Old Testament. So that's why Jesus, though he was the Son of God, had to become a man in order to be our mediator. Now what does that mean for us? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. 
Seeing then that we have a great high priest is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was touched, tempted in all points like as we are. That is, he was tempted in the area of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I've talked to you before about these four, three areas of temptation. He's tempted in the lust of the flesh because the devil told him, you know, you're really hungry now, Jesus. Why don't you uh, uh, command this stone and it'll become bread? And Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was tempted in the area of the lust of the eyes. The devil took him on the high temple or a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he said, all this will be yours because it's been handed over to me. I'll give it to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only and him alone shall you serve. And then he was tempted in the pride of life. The devil took him to the high point of the temple, says, throw yourself down. You know, the angels are going to uh, catch you and bury, bury you up so you won't be killed. In other words, make a spectacle out of yourself, Jesus. You've been tempted in the pride of life. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You will not put the Lord your God to a, a foolish test. Verse 16, let us therefore, here's the practical, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus as our high priest will represent us to God. Amen. We also no longer need prophets. We don't need a priest. We don't need prophets. Prophets in the Old Testament were also mediators. With a mediator again, a mediator is a go-between. The priest offer, uh, represents man to God, and the prophet represents God to man. They did the opposite. They spoke God's word to the people. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, Read the book of Hebrews, uh, brothers and sisters. It's not an easy book. Read it. That, for that reason, you need to read it over and over again to really digest what he's getting at. But he starts right in there in the very first verse of the first chapter. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. This means there's no prophets in the New Testament, in the sense of Old Testament prophets anyway. You know, uh, God spoke at various times in many different ways to the fathers, that is the people in the Old Testament, by the prophets. But now in these last days, how is he speaking to us? 
through the Son. God doesn't speak to us through these Old Testament prophets anymore. He speaks to us through the Son. That is through your own personal relationship. You have the capacity now to just get quiet before the Lord and listen to Him. You listen to Him through His Word, but you also need to learn to get quiet before Him in the secret place of prayer and let Him speak to your heart. So, why be shortchanged? Why do we need a prophet today when we have the Son? I'll say that again. Why do we need a prophet today when we have the Son? We don't need Muhammad. We don't need Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. We don't need Ellen G. White, the prophet of the Seventh-day Adventists. We don't need Mary Baker Eddy for the Christian scientists. We don't need the Watchtower and Bible Tract Society of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, they believe that uh, the Watchtower is the prophet of God today, but we don't need it. Why? Because we don't need a mediator. We don't need the Pope. Amen? We don't need the Pope. We've got the Son. Who's better, the Son or the Pope? We don't need Jim Jones who led 900 uh, and more than 900 of his followers in ritual suicide. Why? Because they accepted him as their mediator instead of the son. We don't need Moses David of the children of God. We don't need David Koresh of the branch Davidians. We don't need anybody else except the son. Amen? Okay, I want to get this, make sure everybody understands that. Because I don't want anybody being led astray by these self-styled prophets of today. Now that doesn't preclude the gift of prophecy, which we've uh, talked about. Which God has bestowed upon the church to be freely exercised in its services. Talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14. You know, I went through this, you know, the, those uh, uh, three chapters. I spent six weeks going through those for you. You know, God uses the prophets today to speak to the members in the course of his service. To share with the other members of the congregation. And the other members of the congregation are to listen and to judge for themselves if that is really, in fact, a word for the Lord. That's what uh, Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses uh, uh, 20 and 21. You know, Paul writes, do not despise prophecies. You know, there's people that say that the gift of prophecy is not for today. Yes, it is for today. It's for today in the sense of uh, foretelling, speaking forth. But you always put everything to the test that you hear in these personal prophecies. Okay? That's why Paul follows that up, despise not prophesying, prophesying prophecies. But then he says, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. You put everything to the test. And I've told you before, you put me to the test. Make sure that I'm preaching the word of God. Okay? Now, all this was made possible 
because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And next time I'm going to complete this cha uh, chapter uh, in uh, Hessian's book, you know, the power that is in the blood of the Lamb. But this was to lay a foundation for what I'll say. And he's, he, we're going to examine what he says are the many achievements and how many blessings for men are ascribed to the blood of the Lord Jesus. He also asks the question and answers it. Where does the power of the blood of Jesus come from? And can we, how can we experience the fullness of its power, the power of the blood in our lives? And finally, he's going to ask the question, are we willing to use its power in our lives for our own personal freedom? Our own personal freedom. So many of us are still bound up in habits that we ought not to be engaging in. Or maybe we see a member of our family or a friend, a close personal friend that's bound up in some kind of ungodly practice. They can get free from it by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at next time. Now, we're going to be uh, spending uh, the next three weeks about side messages that I need to bring. Who knows what next week, next Sunday is? What day? Well, Sunday, but of course, but I mean, what, what date? Well, it's the 30th, right? What happens the day after the 30th? First. The 31st. Which, what is 30, the 31st? Halloween. Okay, now I do this every, uh, uh, you know, this time of the year, every, <clears throat> every uh, uh, Halloween is I talk about the real meaning of October 31st. Because the meaning, according to the world, on October 31st is witches and goblins and demons and warlocks and, you know, evil stuff like that. But that's not what the Christian is to celebrate. And I'll talk about what we are to celebrate. The real meaning of October 31st. The following Sunday will be the Sunday before election. And we have so much at stake, brothers and sisters, and I'm going to talk about that. Now, everybody should have registered to vote. I, I tried very hard to make sure that everybody was registered to vote so you can vote in this election. You need to know what's at, st at stake. Okay? And because of that, I'm going to delay Communion Sunday one, one week, and that the Communion Sunday will be the, the following week after that. Okay, so that's what's up ahead. Now, um, I'm going to give a, have uh, Susie cue up the, uh, uh, the final uh, song there. Okay, the title of this song is Adonai. You see, I've given you a really Jewish kind of message today. 
kind of tie in with what the blood of Jesus means. And so we're going to be singing Adonai. Who knows what Adonai means? What does Adonai mean? Okay, yeah, hold, hold, hold it up to you, Susie. Yeah, pause that if you would. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, pause that. Okay, who knows what Adonai means? Adonai is one of the three words for God, names of God, that was in the Old Testament. The first was Yah or Yahweh. We say Jehovah today. The Tetragrammaton, it was based upon when Moses saw the Lord through the burning bush. And Moses says, what do I tell them your name is? And they said, I am. The Lord said, God said, I am that I am. Yahweh is a derivation from that. There's also Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Elohim is used there. And then there was Adonai. And, you know, you, you have Adonai uh, in, here in uh, Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is there in front of the Pharisees. And he issues this challenge to them. He says, The Lord... The Lord, word there for Lord is Yahweh. Jehovah said unto my Lord, Adonai. Jehovah said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then called him Adonai, who, how is he his son? So he gave him a little chestnut right there. You know, he quoted, I believe it's in, that, that verse is in the book of Psalms. And he gave them this little chestnut to chew on. How can David call him his Adonai? How can he call him Lord or God if he is his son? Well, the reason for that is that, uh, you know, Jesus was the son of David after the flesh. But because he was the son of God... That's why David called him Adonai, or God. 